Hello and welcome to the sixth show of the Lotox Life podcast. I am your host, Alex Stewart, and I'm really excited about today's show. I'm an omnivore. Many of you are too. And if we're going to be omnivores, we really have to think about where our meat comes from because we have a very, very huge Uh, opportunity here with the meat that we buy in literally changing the world. I'm talking things like climate change. I'm talking things like animal agriculture on a large scale. And we, you and I, we are the ones who either say yes to buying whatever without knowing where that animal comes from, how it's raised, what it eats, or to saying, no, I demand transparency. I want to know those animals are cared for in a respectful and beautiful way while they're alive. And fed what their species is meant to eat. Uh, These are the things that are going to help protect our health, the animal's health, the planet's health. And really looking at where our meat comes from is is just a huge opportunity for us to make a difference um, day to day. So Paul shares a stack of really fantastic information, statistics and, and science around why regenerative farming is the way to go and move forward. And he'll, of course, explain what that means for anybody who doesn't know. So I hope you enjoy today's chat as much as I did. Um, He's a beautiful guy and really has a lovely way of explaining things. And when we talk sustainability in today's show, which you'll hear us talk about, Paul shares with us the four pillars that he believes sustainability really means uh, if we're to truly be sustainable, not just uh, in terms of the work that we do and looking after the planet, but also in our lives in general. So it was like a little random nugget of of, of wisdom there that we got, which I know you'll love as much as I did. I, I, I'm, I was furiously making notes. So don't forget to check out the show notes because we have a, a stack of information there lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast is where you can always find the show notes directory. I will leave you now. Enjoy the chat and please keep that conversation going with the Lotox Life hashtag after today's show. And here is Paul himself. Thank you so much for joining me, Paul. Thank you. I'm excited. This will be fun. Yeah, this is going to be great fun. What's the weather like for you over there? We're talking from two totally different areas in the world. You're over in California, me in Sydney. How's it going? Good. I mean, we're right in the middle of summer right now, and we can't complain. We typically we're up in the 90s and low hundreds in the summer. We're sort of a desert climate, but today it's I think 82, so that's Fahrenheit. We're happy with that. Wow, beautiful. Um, I, I actually can't complain either. It is completely blue skies, and I'm nice. looking forward to taking a coastal rock walk. We're going on uh, on Sydney Harbour with my family this afternoon. So beautiful. Nice. Yeah. Now, obviously, we're not here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about quite an emotional subject. Um, And for us omnivores, there is always a question around meat and what's the best kind of meat to, to use, to buy. And there's a lot of buzzwords, you know, marketing takes over. And, and I know, having spoken to so many people in my community, people are genuinely confused around the terms grass-fed and free-range and what different animals are supposed to eat. So I want to start with kind of having a look at a few different types of, of farming so that you can enlighten people because you're obviously a farmer who who would have gone through, you know, how's the best way for us to do this, uh, you know, for our finances, for yep. yield, for all those sorts of things. It's part of the research of becoming a farmer. So I'd imagine you have a fair bit to share. Can we talk about monocropping and yes. single animal farming first? So. First of all, there's a, there's a many, many different ways that you can do both animal and crop production. Um, there's everything from what I call manufacturing, which is like factory farming or monocropping, huge broad acre tracts, you know, growing the corn and the soy here in the U.S., you know, big old cattle ranches and feedlots and stuff like that. Um, obviously, I think that your listeners are going to know that that's really not what you're looking for. And I, I don't even want to spend too much time on that because I think the folks who follow you, they already know what's wrong with those things. That, that's obvious. But then there's sort of this like middle ground, right, between the regenerative stuff, which is what we want to talk about, yeah. and um, stuff that's just marketed really well. So yes. to be honest, there's every, I mean, there's million labels out there now. There's grass-fed, grass-finished, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free, you know, free-range, cage-free. There's 
so many different words out there. Um, and I would love to go into a little bit of detail, at least on a couple of them, and just tell you what some of those really mean. But here in the States, you know, those are heavily controlled by lobbyists, and, uh, and, and they really don't mean what people think that they mean a lot of times. And so it's a good way for these farms to charge, you know, a couple extra dollars a dozen for the eggs and a, an, an extra dollar a pound for the meat. So, Which is exactly uh, the issue that we find and a lot of listeners are going to go, uh-huh, with uh, things like organic skincare. And if you do a little yep. bit of digging, um, to use the word organic on a label, you literally only need to have 10% organic ingredients in that product. Wow. So, you know, the greenwashing, if you like, that happens in personal care and and cleaning products is absolutely happening in the supermarket and farmer's market as well um, to a certain extent with what people can get away with to charge a little bit more. And what we need to drill down to is what the real deal looks like and how, how we become better investigators so we can have that traceability and confidence that we're buying the best for our family. Yeah, and the reality is a lot of times if you can actually find a farm to buy from that you know, you know who it is and where your stuff is coming from, you'll end up spending less money and getting better product. Uh, it's kind of funny the way that works. But these marketers from the big ag, uh, they're fully caught on to the organic movement, the free range and grass-fed movement. They know that these terms are going to make them extra money without much extra cost. So I think the goal uh, one of the goals of this talk is maybe to help people avoid those pitfalls and actually get real food. I think that's fantastic, Paul, because just the other day, it's so good that you mentioned that, I was in one of our larger non-huge, huge supermarkets, like not our Costco or Walmart type level, For that's what you guys would be calling those giants, right. um, but for us it's Woolworths and Coles. Um, but a bit below that, there was there's a significant couple of um, players and I was in one of them the other day and they had free-range eggs, cage eggs and organic eggs. And I looked closer on the label and I saw it was the same producer. So <laughs> this is basically a, a, a company hedging their bets, knowing that, you know, if we chuck those chickens over there with this much more space, technically we'll be able to call it free range. And if we just feed those guys who are still cage eggs organic feed, we'll be able to call it organic. So we can make twice the money there. And it, it was just mind-blowing. So it's absolutely true what you say. There's a lot, of, um, a lot of sneaky business going on. Yeah, I mean, let's just unpack those three terms right there. So free-range, cage-free, and organic. That's, yes, the, that's all related to chicken. It's not really – those aren't really uh, – organic is, but the other two really aren't used for beef or pork or anything else. But free-range, cage-free, organic – so go back to conventional production. The way that chickens are done in all developed countries is a grow house model, whether it's eggs or broilers, which is meat birds. They use a 600-foot – I'm sorry for all the metric people no, – uh, 600-foot okay. long by – Get your calculator uh, out, people. Yep. Yeah, get your calculator out. Here we go. This is an American talking. Uh, they, they use a 600-foot long by 40-foot wide – Basically, it looks like a greenhouse. Uh, they house between thirty and 40,000 birds in each one of those. You've all seen the pictures, but the sad thing is a lot of times that layer of just pure white chicken, is uh, that's just the top layer. A lot of times they're walking around on top of each other, uh, defecating yeah. on each other. The birds need to be de-beaked as baby chicks. Otherwise, they'll pick each other to death. Um, the antibiotic use is just absolutely rampant in there because they'll literally die um, from the toxicity before making it to slaughter weight. So that's conventional. We know that that's not good. Mm. All it takes to do free range, and I'm actually not super familiar with the legalities in, in Australia, but that's here in the okay. U.S. We'll have in the show notes for everybody uh, the differences between the two systems and the terminology, just so wherever you are, um, and I'll have the U.K. as well, um, wherever you are, you can uh, you can access you know, because a lot of people will hear this chat today and think, oh, my gosh, I need to learn more. And so we'll have the resources for you. Perfect. Mm. So you take that exact same grow house and you cut a door at the end of that tunnel, at the end of the 600-foot tunnel. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as long as that's open for two hours a day, whether it leads to a 10-foot by 10-foot concrete patch or not, as long as it opens up and there's technically access to the outdoors – yeah, that qualifies as free range and cage free. Oh, so it literally has no impact on the health of the animal. Mm. Um, all it is is a pure marketing play, and it, it, it's just it's sad how much that's been abused. 
Now you take organic, all that means in the U.S. is that the USDA or the United States Department of Agriculture has certified that 95% of those grains were not sprayed um, or GMO, you know, with the pesticides that are disallowed under that program. So it has nothing to do with the animal welfare. It doesn't have anything to do with the antibiotic use. It's purely based on the feed. Um, and so you can have free range organic chickens that look identical to what a conventional chicken would look like, but selling for, you know, 40 to 60% premium. Oh, and the devastation behind that pack of meat uh, that, you know, we just aren't in touch with, are we? Because we don't realize that these loopholes exist for the most part. And it's tough to to sit with this and to think about what that actually looks like. And, to you know, your chicken dinner just doesn't look as exciting anymore when you once you know this. And, you know, you can go either way, can't you, Paul? Like, I, I don't know, we'll get into your history in a little second um, as, as a tangent because I want to I share more about your journey. But I know for me, when I first learnt this, it was about 10 years ago and uh, getting information online was like, um, you know, perfect pun, getting hen's tooth. And uh, <laughs> it was just unbelievable to try and peel yep. back these layers and and find the the hidden stuff that was going on without the public knowing now social media has changed all of that hasn't it yep. because we exactly. can communicate connect share say no these guys are doing something bad and secretive you got to buy this one you know it's you can everyone can be influential in a better world and better animal agriculture now and it's just it's just so wonderful that we can finally start to get some traction happening. Um, the truth is coming out, and it's mm. coming out in a big way. And oh, I yeah. think this movement really started in the 1950s, you know, it, when the industrial era came in and planes and trains and automobiles, they all got cheaper, faster, bigger, better. Um, but they tried to do the same thing with our food. And so they started manufacturing food instead of farming it. Um, and it was really easy to cover up for a long time because we didn't have – the internet and social media and things that kind of brought private actions so public, mm. uh, but it's not possible anymore now. No. So they can't hide it and people are coming to know and they're really looking for alternatives. And the good thing is as confusing as all these labels sound, there's a really, really simple solution to all of it. And uh, we'll definitely talk about that at some yes, point. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, obviously, well, we've really just covered chickens there. We haven't even gone into beef and lamb and everything. There's so much we could talk about. I'm feeling like a part two mini series situation <laughs> coming on already. But could we find out, you know, how did you come to care about this stuff, Paul? Like, were you born into a farming family or did you move into farming later? How did it uh, manifest for you? Yeah, not in the slightest. Actually, I grew up in downtown Seattle, which is a pretty oh, good wow. size a city here in the States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, total city guy. Um, I, I joined the military right out of college as, a, as an officer in the Marine Corps, and I started getting some arthritis problems. So I was getting pretty bad joint pain in my knees and my neck and my back, and I felt like I was eating a pretty standard American diet, which now we know, you know, the, it's quite the acronym sad, is SAP isn't it? for that yeah. SAP. <laughs> Um, but I thought I was eating a normal diet for an American person and I didn't understand what was going on. And so I had some colleagues in the military say, Hey, why don't you try reducing your inflammation? You know, they're actually like before their time, this was probably back in 2007. They said, try this anti-inflammatory diet, get rid of a few of these foods and see how you feel. And, um, reluctantly I did. And just two weeks in, I could breathe through my nose again. I felt you know, so much better with the joint pain and that experience really caused me to take a deep dive on our food system and what's really going on. Mm -hmm. And so I started eating healthier. My whole family started eating healthier. And we sort of turned this corner. Like my father-in-law lost probably 100 pounds just from diet. Wow. My two brothers-in-law, you know, they, they fixed a lot of similar problems to what I had and just general lethargy and no energy and no vitality um, just from eating differently. And yeah. so when we got more into this, we started looking for, you know, hey, let's go find like local foods. Let's look for organic foods. Let's look for good, real food. And yeah. we were on kind of a tight budget. I, I had now moved on from the military. I was working uh, in an office job, just doing accounting. And um, oh, that sounds everything's, everything's always, you know, 
on a budget. So yeah. it really started to bother me when I started learning about these free range meats and these organic meats that I was buying for my family and spending all this extra money. Um, and it really wasn't worth paying extra for. So yeah. we happened to have a quarter acre of grass at the back of my in-laws house. Mm-hmm. And, and this is still in Seattle, right? No, now we're down in Southern California. Oh, we're down in California I, I came to now. Southern we've, California. We've moved Palace. over. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I had to escape all that rain, but uh, <laughs> now I really miss it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As a farmer, you're like, can we just bring some of that over to California? Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah just a little bit. <laughs> so we were sitting around Easter of 2012, and we we're actually just joking. How funny would it be if we got some of our own chickens and grew some for ourselves or whatever? Ha ha, big joke. So my brother-in-law, Rob, he's sitting there with us, and... He disappears from the room for about 10 minutes, comes back, and he goes, oh, hey, by the way, I just ordered 50 chicks. They'll be here in a week. And uh, we all said, what? What did you do? What are you talking about? And he said, yeah, I thought you guys were serious, so I just ordered them. And uh, that's how we got into farming, believe it or not. <laughs> okay. looks like you guys, uh, you're in at this point. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we're big followers of Joel Salatin. I loved his work out oh, in Virginia. I love his work, too. Yeah. Um, so we knew that we wanted to raise them outside on grass, on healthy feed, um, you know, without any need for antibiotics. And we wanted to do something that was really good for the, for the planet too, good for the soil. Mm-hmm. So we got our first 50 chicks. We put them outside. And again, we were just planning to eat them ourselves. Um, but I put a couple posts up on Facebook and just said, hey, if anybody would be interested, we're doing pasture-raised chicken. Um, here's a link to put a deposit down if you want to buy a bird or two. Mm. And to our surprise, like all 50 birds sold out within two weeks. So there's still like these little chicks walking around. Oh They're my all gosh. All pre-sold. Uh, by the time, yeah, by the time we harvested them, we had a wait list of about 110 families that all wanted chicken for the next batch. So, And that just goes to okay. show how desperate people were for a transparent buying system, really. Totally. Mm. Exactly where you're buying directly from the farmer, you know the people that you're buying from, you can go visit the farm, you know, all this is pretty simple, but... Um, yeah, but in, until that switch goes off in you, you don't realize how good it is and how right it is and how logical it is. You exactly. just think in the convenience trap that the whole of today's society has got us in. So you, it, we're exactly. not even consciously moving through our food choices for the most part until something like ha- happened to you with your arthritis yep. or something like happened to me with crazy ongoing tonsillitis that no one could solve. Uh, you know, we all have, unfortunately, so often these these aha moments through a bit of a health scare ourselves. Um, and and what's beautiful about people like you going into food production, people like me going into education, is the hope that we can actually start to mitigate before people get to that point in their lives and exactly. just say this is the way, and this is the way, so that we don't get to those sorts of points in our lives, or at least when we do, it's far less often and less, you know, um, less massive a health scare, if you like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and, and a lot of the reasons that people buy free-range meats and organic meats is because they're just trying to feed their family with the healthiest thing that they can find. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it doesn't need to get to the point where we're hitting rock bottom and we can't move our back anymore. Like, <laughs> we, maybe we can save it before. We're so but, apocalyptic, but... us humans. We're like, oh, do you think maybe it's something I'm doing as you lie there completely debilitated? <laughs> oh, we're very frustrating species sometimes, I find. But, you know. Uh, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you've you've been inspired by Joel Salatin. You've got your 50 chicks pre-sold. Like how do you go from there to where you guys are now, which is an incredible little mini empire of, of sustainable farming? Yeah, I mean, we've just had... that's not many years. No. And the first year, we really didn't try to grow it. I mean, the next batch, we waited three months and we did like 100. And then a few months later after that batch, we did 200. So we would double every time, but it mm-hmm. went very slow. Like for the first year, it was just in our spare time and we were all working full-time jobs. Um, in the second year, we said, all right, I think maybe we have a real business on our hands. So why don't we try really doing this? Um, I saved up some money and jumped just full board. My wife and I moved from our you know nice beach community out to the country and we started a we started working full-time on the farm, which was like this crazy leap of faith, but it ended up being great. 
Um, but the real, the way that the thing has grown is just by these amazing customers that have like come to know us personally. They've been out for farm tours. They come to our events. They, they really know us and they, they, uh, they've come to trust us as a source that they can really see like a hundred percent transparency mm-hmm. and we've never sacrificed on quality. So we've only done whatever the top quality product that we can. Um, and we've never, you know, like done anything that would compromise our integrity or our quality. So I think people come to appreciate that after they get to know us for a while. Absolutely. But we, you know, we went from 200 and then 400 and then a thousand and then 2000 birds. And, um, people started asking us like, Hey, where, where should we get beef from? Where should we get lamb from? Where should we get pork from? And so we started doing all this research, like, to try to refer people to these different farms. Mm. And it was Mm. really, really hard to find good stuff. Um, For the longest time, we weren't able to refer anybody for pork. And I think it's like two years we said, look. And, you know, I have written to so many free-range pork companies um, because free-range is our big loophole term here in Australia. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And... 90% 90% of the time I get a re- reply confirming that they're being fed a mix of grains that contains genetically modified corn and yeah. soy. And right. 10% of the time, especially the really big, well-known celebrity endorsed free-ranged pork, uh, they don't even reply at all. And yeah. um, and to me, silence speaks volumes in, in the sure. transparency game. So, yeah, it's really – yeah. So, right. So did you realise, because I know obviously with Joel Salatin's work and um, and that'll be in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to read a couple of Joel's books. He's a fascinating man. Um, the, the theory is really going to revolve around not just having one animal on your farm, isn't it? And right. can you explain why that is? Well, one of our fundamental beliefs for our farming practice and Joel's is that nature provides the best template. And so whether you understand why you're doing things scientifically or not, um, which we do understand, but just from a basic common sense perspective, if nature does it one way, we think there's probably a pretty good reason to to try to replicate that on our farm. So there is nothing monocropped in nature. I don't care where you go. Even if you go out to the middle of the desert, in the middle of Australia, I can guarantee you have millions of different, you know, microbiomes and different kind of plants and little species and insects and critters. And uh, there is no monocrop in nature. So first and foremost, our goal is to just replicate nature and that it's only a polyculture that exists in nature. So we know that there needs to be additional animals other than just doing a chicken farm or something. So when you look at nature, and I think this is really cool to do this little exercise, but you go somewhere that's kind of been like unfettered by society. So one of the places that we look to a lot is the African Serengeti that really hasn't been developed. It hasn't been overhunted. It's kind of like still a natural habitat. and It's huge. So it's not affected too much by film crews and people trying to get in there and move in and all this stuff. But when you look at that, it's this beautiful symbiotic relationship between large animals, medium, small, and then rest. Yes. And the way it looks is you have these big, huge, large animals that come through and they eat the really, really tall grass, the virgin grasses each year. So in, you know, in the Serengeti, that would be like your wildebeest and your bison, the buffalo, you know, the really, really big 2,000 pound animals and stuff like that. They'll come through, they'll eat the grass, they'll poop all over the ground. And then once that ground has been sort of manured, they need to move on to the next spot. Yeah. And well, they're done so there, right? Operate so, in these, yeah. Yeah, they'll operate in these large herds. Uh, the herd is used because their only defense against predation is the power of numbers. You know, they have wolves and coyotes and lions and tigers and all these different things. So they have to stay in a pack. They eat all the grass below them, they poop on the ground, and then they move. Behind them will come the medium-sized animals. So that's like your deer, your antelope. You know, we replicate with sheep on the farm. Um, they'll eat behind them. They like the grass when it's maybe, you know, a foot high. They'll graze it down till it's maybe, you know, three, four inches high, something like that. They'll do the same thing. They'll poop on the ground and then they'll move on following the big animals. Lastly, the smaller, the smallest animals that come through, usually that's fowl. So that's like swans, turkeys, you know, wild ducks, geese, all these different species we replicate with chicken. They'll do one last graze. They're actually called like nature sanitizer Mm -hmm. because they'll pick through all the fecal matter. They'll clean it out. They'll spread it out all over the pasture. 
and then they'll find the bugs and the worms and the seeds and the grasses and the different things because they're omnivores. Um, and then they'll poop on the ground and then they move. Yeah. And then the most important thing happens, which is the rest period. So this is where we really get to like regenerative agriculture and the way that it works in the wild. The soil, by resting for 90, 180, 360 days, uh, it'll absorb the nutrition from that manure and it'll actually build that soil, the topsoil, the organic matter into being healthier and more productive for the next year or the next time that the rain comes through and charges it. So mm-hmm. like in monocrops, we take all the poop from inside of a chicken barn, we stack it up, uh, we pile it up there for a long time, it leaches into the groundwater, then we mix it with water and spray it on the corn plant, you know, but it is a hell, it's a, it's a good fertilizer for the soil. But how much more efficient is it to have the animals putting it down themselves, spreading it out themselves? And so that's essentially what we're looking to do on the farm is do this multi-species regenerative use of the manure, which is going to recharge the soil and build fertility every single year. Interesting. And this is the kind of thing that keeps the carbon in the soil, right? Is that? Exactly. Yes. Because a lot of people, you know, I'm often on... um, uh, panels where I'm the the token person saying, "Hey, uh, it, it's all meat is not bad because you know, as you will know, being in the meat business, um, the climate change people are after you, the vegans uh, after you, and uh, you know, my community is super con- inclusive. We have vegans, vegetarians, omnivores, yep. um, total carnivorous like um, OTT paleo peeps. You know, we've got <laughs> everybody. So I love everyone, and our goal as a group is to come to together over the love of real food and of course veggies we'll always all have in common which is lovely Um, but when I've been on panels before I really find it important to keep the conversation around regenerative farming alive because um, in my research it seems to me and I would love it if you could back me up on this Paul or indeed refute me and say no no not true um, that that regenerative farming is actually all about leaving the soil richer um, and carbon-rich, therefore carbon not going off into the atmosphere but staying in the soil where it actually needs to be, um, than uh, than farming, say, just corn or plants even or, you know, even a vegetable garden. Um, it seems that the way the animals work together to do exactly what you just described gives us better soil than when we started, which is how regenerative farming is working around the world at the moment because I know Joel is often contracted to come in as a consultant on particularly arid landscapes and regenerate yep. them through this um, animal rotation method. Is this – am I warm? <laughs> you're hot. No, yes, you're yay. right on. I okay, mean, you're, great. you're hitting Bingo. the nail on the head. <laughs> Regenerative agriculture doesn't just keep carbon in the soil. It actually sequesters carbon from neighboring properties, which is really, really amazing. Oh, my uh, goodness. Okay. A good Talk large chunk, like a well-managed large grassland, can actually sequester carbon from many, many freeways worth of traffic You know, driving around. One of my favorite farmers, um, and he's kind of a farmer slash speaker, uh, Alan Savory out of South oh, Africa, yes. is yes. kind of a... Him and Joel Salatin, I would say, are like two of the pioneers at the forefront of this regenerative, holistic. He he uses the term holistic land management, mm-hmm. um, and he really looks at the way that it was done in nature and replicating large species, large number of animals on a small area, but rotated very, very often like they are in nature to really beat the soil, to get that uh, manure into the soil. And it doesn't just, like I said, it doesn't just keep the carbon from going out. It will sequester carbon from neighboring properties and all this stuff about arid climates, dry climates, water retention, it's, it all comes down to the health of the soil. Mm. When you see a big rain come through, you know, a real big rain come through somewhere in Australia where you get three, four, five inches in one day, you're probably getting half of that, a half inch um, to actually go into the soil where 90% of that rain will actually run off and go down to the stream or the ocean or go somewhere else. It, it, it will not stay on your property. But okay. as you So how do we soil, get it to stay in the property? It'll actually stay on your on your land, exactly. And that will recharge healthy water for the ground. It will create more and more feed every single year. So here's what I, I always go back to is, yes, regenerative farming is certainly good for the environment. It's absolutely a positive thing. But I agree with the vegans and the, you know, the anti-animal people that say, 
99.999% of animal agriculture is bad for the environment. It's oh, not I the agree. cow's fault. I absolutely agree. Yes. It's the manager's fault oh. and it's the consumer's fault for buying the stuff. Yeah. But yeah. it's a uh, it is the definitely the lion's share of agriculture is not good for the planet, mm. uh, and that needs to change quickly. Yes, and this is why I think it's crucial that we keep giving a voice to regenerative farming, because you know the reality is, is a lot of people really don't thrive on plant-based diets as a one hundred percent plant-based diet. Um, right. They find a really um, big surge of health in that first month when they're cleansing from all the weirdness, um, but you know long term um, it's wonderful to keep in the mix for most people so we have a responsibility as omnivores to therefore as you say just stop buying the weird and the bad stuff start eating less of it and trade up on quality and transparency and locality and um and supporting your local regenerative farmer because they are popping up everywhere paul like this is it's really exciting what's going on are you finding where you are in your neck of the woods um that more people are making the switch Uh, absolutely it's a huge movement happening not just in california but across the country and you're seeing farmers pop up and you're seeing customers pop up and it's still really got to take root. I mean, I, I really feel like we're building computers in the 80s, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Like, yeah. We're at the forefront of this big tidal wave that's going to come and hit us. But one of the big things that I always go back to is the antibiotic resistance and the superbugs that are coming out of these factory farms are literally going to force our hand. They're going to make us do regenerative agriculture because we're not going to be able to keep the antibiotics up as fast as the, as, as fast as these, uh, as the superbugs are growing. So we saw this thing, um, I don't know if you guys had it there, but we had this thing called the avian flu or bird flu come through last year and it wiped out a third of all laying hens in the United States. Oh my goodness. That's a good example of like, I can guarantee you nobody that was out on a pasture regenerative system, you know, got hit by the bird flu because the number one killer for that, for that actual disease was UV. So the sun would kill that in about five seconds when it was dropped. Mm. But when they're inside in these nasty environments, you can't come up with antibiotics fast enough to keep these animals alive. And it's going to really force our hand within the next, I don't know, 10, 20 years. Um, it's just getting so much worse so fast. Mm. I think we're going to have to turn to this. to feed Yeah, there's more. a real tipping point, isn't there, where this stuff is just in the news, I mean, you know, if you're, especially if you're searching for it every day. There's a new drama with some new things. Yeah, as you said, you know, some new bugs sweeping through agriculture and killing lots of animals. And, you know, if we are going to eat animals, it just seems so crazy tragic to me that we would knowingly um, eat from an animal that has had a terrible, horrible, miserable, crowded, confined, sick life um, just to satisfy our need for a burger or, a, yeah. you know, a chicken wing. So yep. it's it's really, it's hard work and it's confronting work to make that realisation, especially if someone's listening right now and thinking, whoa, I had no idea, um, you know, but you know, today is a new day and we never need to feel guilty about what we didn't know because we didn't know, right? So it's much more important to start getting excited about, the new journey that you'll be on, um, which is starting to find transparency in in the system through which you buy your meat. Um, Yeah, and one thing I always go back to too is you can't beat yourself up over it. Like all you can do is your best. Um, Even, you know, buying one regenerative chicken every three months or something. Like we talk to people on a budget all the time and, Mm. and this is something that we're super passionate about is like how do you bring this to the average American feminist shouldn't be something that's just for the wealthy. No, exactly. Uh, I talk but about all you can do is your too. best. So mm. even just knowing about it and being an advocate for it, you know, that's still way better than than most of the population is doing so far. Yeah. And, you know, something, I don't know whether this is the same for you, but I help a lot of people switch to organic pasture-raised chicken by looking at how much per kilo they were buying their neatly packaged breasts or thighs. Um, Exactly. And, you know, those are often, uh, if you're buying uh, free range, so that as we talked about, could still be super, super caged up most of the day but let out for a token, you know, two hours on a piece of concrete, if that. 
Um, if you're buying that, that's quite often around $15, $16 Australian a kilo. So that'd be $11, $12 for you guys. Now, yep. you could literally buy a whole organic pasture-raised chicken and it would be 12 to 13 Australian dollars a kilo somewhere, <laughs> you know, like, so it's, it's often I find it's actually just changing the way you shop and looking for, um, and, and raising your cooking skills. So learning yep. how to roast a whole bird or cut a, a bird in sections if you want to use different parts. And trust me when I say my first few chicken um, uh, cutting <laughs> endeavours, shall we call them, were more like freak science hacking experiments. Yes, exactly. uh, so it's, it's never pretty when you first get started. But now I feel <laughs> like a bit of a chef and um, I'm quite good at it. And it's fast. Uh, and Whole you know, chickens is a great point. I mean, I'm even transparent with our customers. If they bought each part of that chicken cut up, mm. they would be spending probably about $45 on the bird. Yes. If they were to buy the same thing whole, it's $25. Yeah. You know? And that's just, that's just part of the convenience. But people still buy it. Yeah. And some people, they don't, they're not really that worried about it. But some are really on a tight budget. They want to eat healthy. And they're going, how do I spend $18 for a pound of boneless, skinless chicken breast? And it's like... That's not the way That's to do gonna it. That's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the beauty of that is you've still got all of your bones, so you can make a stock, which would essentially be free because exactly. you've got the bones. So we really need to change the way we think, right? One other thing that I always comment on too, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same where you are in Australia, but another thing I consult people on all the time is, look, I sell meat for a living, but I'll tell you right now, if you're the average American, we're probably eating five to ten times more meat than what we really need to be healthy. Yes, I and think that's a great point. If you could just take all that garbage meat that you're consuming and replace it with quality meat but have like less of it, then you could actually probably save money too that way. So yeah, that's another yeah. one people need to pay attention to. Exactly. And, you know, people saying things like, oh, but I just, I feel too full to eat all the vegetables. <laughs> We're just <laughs> eating too much meat. If we actually made some space, we'd be fine and we could we could fit the veggies in. And then again, it's about making the veggies taste delicious. You know, I... I can't tell you how many um, little kids, you know, that fussy eating kind of um, predicament a lot of parents find themselves in who would be struggling to eat a steamed broccoli, but then you roast it with olive oil and sea salt and yep. and they'll eat a whole head uh, and totally. say, this is amazing. So we've got to be making sure we're making those plants and plant foods as appealing, if not more to the meat, so that we're really starting to bring that balance back in. And it's amazing when you start to do that and... And as a family, you start to see the two-thirds to three-quarter of a plate being veggies and exactly. a quarter being beautiful quality, best you can afford, totally traceable meat. Um, you're really starting a movement on your plate right there by doing that. It's That's totally true. Mm. We were worried. I mean, we thought that when we got into this, we'd be selling to wealthy people. And that wasn't really something I was interested in doing. But I've been really encouraged you know, with thousands and thousands of customers here in Southern California, we used to drive our own delivery routes and we would go right to people's doorstep. And I was always shocked that probably half of our customers were in small apartments driving not too nice of cars, but they were just prioritizing their food over other things. And I think that that's, it's a really important part of it. Well, we've really started to realize what we're putting in our mouths is super essential to the overall health picture. And you, I mean, especially in a place like America, where unfortunately healthcare isn't necessarily guaranteed to all, one of the best things you can do is work on the preventative, right? Right, exactly. Mm, that's it. That's Joel Salatin's Joel the guy who said, uh, I know you think that yeah, organic food's expensive, but have you priced cancer lately? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's devastating how much people end up having to spend or get out bank loans for to to have some some healthcare down the track. So food is food is absolutely one of the best things we can prioritize. Now, I I know this is uh, obviously not the type of farming you do, but this is something a lot of people are curious about, and I would love to to go there if you're game. Um, GMO farming, uh, you know, obviously there's, it's a minefield. It's an hour's conversation easily. Um, but can you just help, uh, anyone listening who's curious about it, knows they don't want stuff from, um, genetically modified origin, but doesn't know how to have a conversation about it, if you like, because, 
um, of, you know, there's a lot of sensationalized media around it and then there's a lot of secrecy and there's a lot of naysayers and lobbyists driving, you know, of course this is safe and of course this is how we're going to feed the world. How do you feel about it as someone who's done a lot of research into farming practices? I mean, I've looked at it a lot and to be honest, I think that the research still says we don't know Mm. and that's kind of scary to me. Like I'm not one of those really hardcore anti-GMO people for primal pastures. We don't use any GMOs whatsoever, neither in our pastures or in our feed or in our birds. So there are no GMOs at all within the products. But um, I'm one of those people that's kind of like science-based and so I'd like to wait and see – what this stuff actually results in like down the road to really make an opinion on it. But, um, here in the U S basically, unless it says non GMO, it is. So Mm. especially when you're talking about your staple crops, your corn, your soy, your wheat, you know, these things are predominantly GMO in our country now. And yes, it's something around the 80, 90%. Yeah. There's different levels of GMO. I mean, you could call genetically modified. You could call that everything from just doing a simple cross um, to actually removing, you know, molecular DNA and like swapping it out with other stuff, which to me like that, when you get to that level, 20 years down the road, if people are dying and getting all these problems, it's not going to be that surprising. So no. And this is the thing with, um, uh, with the chemicals in our personal care and our cleaning products as well is that, that, unfortunately industry seems to have a stronghold over the market where it gets to say it's innocent until definitely definitely by multiple multiple millions of studies proven guilty whereas you know we really should be going hey I don't think it's quite innocent yet so let's just make sure we do a lot of testing before we bring that out to market I would like to see the latter start to be the way we do things but it seems they can just kind of do a couple of months worth of private testing and go yep yep we're all good and get yep. it out there it's tough though i mean to to be totally frank with you it is tough because one of the things especially with animal agriculture and omnivores in specific mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking about chickens and pigs those are animals that are meant to have some kind of a supplemental feed so yes. When you talk about cows and sheep, they should be only grass ever, and that's absolutely 100% of the time. They shouldn't right. ever yeah. be eating grains or doing anything because they're ruminant animals. But when you start to talk about your chickens and pigs, they're built differently. So the chicken actually has a gizzard that's a, an organ that's devoted specifically to sprouting and making the grain more digestible before it's actually consumed into the body. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, when you watch chickens in the wild, they'll go and they'll pick wild grains off of the top of grasses and they'll find different seeds and different things that need to be sprouted in the gizzard that they have. Um, And so you really have to look at what species appropriate for each different kind of animal. So sometimes we have people come and they say, okay, do you have 100% pasture pure chicken, like never fed any feed? And we always respond, you know, like that's really not too possible. Um, And it's actually (laughs) not even the best thing for the chicken. Like they're meant to get some grain. So once you find that kind of chicken that's raised on pasture that does get the supplemental feed, you start asking the questions. It, what, what kind of feed is it getting? What's the program like? All these different things. And so with Primal Pastures, we've made the commitment to 100% certified organic soy and GMO free feed. Yeah. Uh, okay. And that's what our customers want. And that's what they pay for. But we also had, I don't know, five to 10 restaurants a week calling saying we really want to use pastured poultry that's regenerative, that's good for the environment, but we can't afford to pay for organic GMO free. Would you guys do a special bird just for restaurants that's still pasture raised, but they're raised on just whatever feed you know that you can find for them? So we, we did a different company for that just because sometimes I feel like to get from zero to 60, yeah. like you need to hit every speed in between there. And so I don't want to be the hardcore militant that says, no, you need to keep buying from a factory farm. Like I'd still rather have you buy from a pasture-based system where the birds are rotated and they're not using antibiotics, but they're getting feed with a GMO in it mm-hmm. rather than buying straight out of a factory farm. So That's really me, interesting, you know, it's, Paul, it's because I think, um, I think what you've illustrated there is, again, that emphasis that I like to make, that there is no black and white and there is no move from zero to 60, as you say. Um, 
and why not help people uh, at, at all the stages between because it's still a massive improvement in terms of animal welfare, in terms of quality of bird. If they're getting sunshine, that completely changes um, yeah. their uh, their profile, the eggs they lay, it changes how much vitamin D is in there. It, it still does so many great things. And it's I think that's a really interesting illustration. It's quite confronting as well because you think oh but that's not the right way but it's certainly a huge step in the direction of the right way to help restaurants start to move in the right direction as well yeah and i would just i would hate for one of your listeners to go and they go talk to their local pastured livestock farm and they say oh you know we yeah we do pastured chicken but they do get gmo feed and then for that listener to say oh all right that's a bad farm then and i'm just going to go and buy from a factory farm because i can't find pastured chicken or something like that so you know there's it it really comes down to the consumer what they want to do i mean it's a like you said it's not black and white by any means yeah and there are definitely improvements so it's absolutely essential that we acknowledge that yeah i like that okay great um now Ah, what else could we talk about? There's so many questions I still have. Uh, Where, like, obviously there's the internet, but the internet can be a really uh, scary place, lots of conflicting information out there. Are there books or really reliable resources you you feel you can send people to who want to learn? Maybe, you know, it's a small farmer out there listening today and and they want to start doing things more sustainably and they want to learn more or maybe it's just consumers wanting to really um, get across all the different terminology and, uh, and and what's going to help them buy best. Where would you point these people to? Um, one guy that we brought up a couple times already is Joel Salatin. He's yeah. a, a fantastic author. He has five or six books out that are just really, really great. For any you know farmers or prospective farmers out there, he has a book that's called Pastured Poultry Profits. Mm-hmm. And although that sounds like rather capitalistic, um, the reality is if you're going to go into this, you should approach it as both a business and something that's going to help the ecology of your land. So uh, that's a book I really, really highly recommend is Pastured Poultry Profits. I love that. And, and I've been to one of day, uh, Joel's all-day seminars and I love that he focuses so, so much of his day on ensuring the farmer will actually have a successful business, not just right. do great things for the planet because Unless the businesses succeed, then we're not going to move anywhere forward fast um, with all the, you know, but I'm doing great things for the planet, but everyone only wants to spend $8 a kilo. So, oh, and then we went out of business. That's not helping anyone. So, yeah, I think it's important. You're not going to be doing great things for the planet for very long if you're losing money. No, and profit is not a dirty word. You know, the right people need to start profiting is the point because the right people with the money in their hands are going to continue to do great things for the world on a larger scale which is wonderful yeah and i guarantee you there's no pastured livestock farmers out there becoming billionaires you know (laughs) like it'd probably be good if one of them could drive a decent car every once in a while but uh it's just not the case right now it's yeah, but I mean, you know, it's that beautiful thing where it's not an inflated wealth. You know, all the crazy inflated wealth like the private jets to Milan and all that, that we really, no one needs that, you know, to really be exactly. happy in this lifetime. But we need to go on a family holiday. We need to you oh. know, be able to buy the roof over our head. That's realistic goals and maybe a little holiday apartment timeshare. Like I'm pretty happy with that scenario. Yeah, we, we really, as long as we expect you know, our teachers and our farmers to be in poverty, they're going to be in a, yeah. I think we really have to get out of that mindset. I mean, I, they are, absolutely. the farmers are the doctors of the 21st century. So uh, they need, as consumers, we need to be comfortable with them having somewhat decent lifestyles, you know, and I think that's a big thing for people a lot of times. And we've done well as farmers financially, not well in the sense of a tech company or something like that, but for farming, like we've done well financially. And I, Facebook isn't buying you for $5 million. Yeah, yeah, What's exactly. going on? <laughs> I think, uh, I think that that kind of puts certain people off every once in a while when they say, Hey, wh- how, how can you go on vacation if you're a farmer? Like that's not what you guys are supposed to, you're supposed to be waking up at two in the morning and working till, you know, dark and all this stuff. And it's like, that's, you have to be sustainable, not yeah. just ecologically, but economically. And life-wise. You life need to be sustainable yeah. and you need to be socially sustainable too. Like you can't just burn yourself out and never want to do this and have your wife not want to talk to you because all you ever do is work. Um, you, it, 
sustainability really comes in those four facets to me. And I think that's super important. Oh, I love that. That is so good because I I remember signing up on my very first day of university um, thinking, you know, this is what really good, like people who care about the world do, to a huge um, environmental organization and to Mm -hmm. become a member. And and I went to the first meetup and everyone was angry and upset with the world and talking about all this work we'd have to do and how we'd have to, you know, spend at least 30 hours a week on this stuff on top of our full-time university degrees and the jobs we need to support ourselves through <laughs> university to, to do the work if we really were committed. And it just, it, it wasn't for, like I straight away thought, well, hold, hold on, why do we have to be angry and overworked? That's, that's not going to help. And, and I remember right. saying that to myself as an 18-year-old. It just didn't sit right with me, but I, I guess I didn't have the real vocab to put it into words why back then or why I ended up leaving. But, you know, when I came back to my own business now, which I have uh, an education business, as you know, it's, it, it really is just so important because if you really want to continue sustainably helping this sustainability cause and, um, and doing better things for, for the planet and for people, you ain't going to be able to do it if you're too exhausted, burnt out, adrenals shot, you know, that, yep. that's, that's, you're not going to be any help to anybody. And it comes back to that, fill your own cup up to be able to fill other people's cups up and, yep. um, and, and don't be afraid of a healthy profit built into your system as it should be so that you can actually sustainably hire others, create more jobs. It doesn't have to be all you. It just brings up a whole bunch of stuff, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this whole do-gooder, do-good-for-the-planet thing, we have this picture of this crazy person, you know, giving their entire lives up for that and nothing else, and it just doesn't need to be that. There's, yeah, sustainability in all forms. So what were the four metrics? Let's hear them again. Uh, Mine go ecological, which is taking care of the land, economic, which we've just been talking about. Mm. Um, Social and family is is a huge one to me, too. I mean, you you really can't sit there and just work, work, work all the time and just be totally burnt out. It's not going to be sustainable. I mean, I've been there. Trust me. It's when you're starting the business out from scratch, it's really, really tough. But um, the fourth one is legal. I think a lot of times small farmers, we want to cut corners legally and we are so anti-regulation and the federal government, the state government, the county government and the city government and all these people want to get in our business. But if you want to be around long term, you have to listen to those guys and you have to follow the rules. Otherwise, I've, I've seen that take as many farms as anything, to mm. be honest. Oh, yeah. And that's heartbreaking. Again, that's no help to anybody in this um, in this. Uh, work for a better world. Gosh, so many great things have come from this chat, Paul. So where where can everybody find you? Um, so we're at primalpastures.com. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our big things is like if you're in the area or if you can get to the area, we have farm tours and workshops every single month. Oh, do you? Uh, I'm there yeah, early that's... August. I'll have to check it out. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, definitely come out. So one of the things we really, really try to harp on is – these labels are full of it. I mean, I, I'm sure they're the same where you are as, as where they are here. And oh, the yeah. easy solution to that. We're identical. We're a mini US when it comes to exactly, labeling yeah. meat. Yeah. The solution to that is so simple. It's literally go visit your farm, talk to your farmer, and see it for yourself. In the military, we say inspect what you expect. Mm. And just by the simple fact of farms opening up their doors and allowing you to come in is a very, very good sign. Um, If you can find a farm that even offers farm tours, whether you go on one or not, to be honest, it's a good sign if they offer them. Yes, Uh, that's a great So to to get around all these food labels, all this crazy talk, and to be able to to actually just go and see your food and talk to the farmer is is a huge step in the right direction. Uh, And it's actually pretty fun. So we do every single month, we host farm tours. We have workshops where we'll teach people how to process their own chicken and do different things. We have potlucks and different events. So definitely jump on primalpastures.com if you're anywhere near Southern California. Um, All of our meats are available throughout Southern California, um, all by home delivery. And then another site that you can check us out on is PastureBird. PastureBird, we just rolled out a national um, home delivery program across the entire United States. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's only pastured poultry. It's not any other meats, but we're really excited about the product line. 
and we're getting some really good feedback. But that's like brand new. Um, nobody even really knows about Pasture Bird yet, but definitely check that out as well. Oh, well, we do. I sent a few thousand friends. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be lovely for people. I always encourage people who are visiting other countries um, to add in agricultural visits and investigations and, and it's you the know, best. curiosity. I'm telling you, everywhere that my wife and I travel, we'll go and check out a couple of farms. It's like the yeah, funnest Yeah, it's like yeah. forget the wine tours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I'm sure the farmer will have wine if you ask. So go check him <laughs> out or her. Always. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, so I think what we've covered there is is really wonderful and I might just bring us back to a few um, of the key points. One was uh, when you were talking about the beef and the lamb versus the chicken and the pork, that species appropriate feed and the difference between those two groups. So chicken and pork, obviously needing a little bit of grain in their mix. And if you're committed to a non-GMO grain, then that's a question you have to ask for that transparency for you. Um, And then with beef and lamb to not just buy from a grass fed label, but to also ensure grass finished and then of course if um, organic is uh, important to you to also ask if that farm is registered organic because if Australia is like the US which it may well be um, something I investigated when I looked at what the grass-fed and finished label might mean is that if unless you are certified organic as well then the farmer could still well be using Roundup on um, on things like um, weeds and and yeah. and the grasses themselves. So it, it's you know it's all about thinking about your own personal commitment and the t- kind of transparency level you require from today onwards, and to just start asking those questions and look for the farm stays, the farm visits, the farm yeah. gate buying, because these are all those clues. Even if you don't go to that farm, as you just said, Paul, that they are open doors, nothing to hide, we would love to meet you type of farmers. And this is kind of what we want moving forward, right, to start getting that confidence in where our food comes from. Well, look, say that you had a, you know, you needed a heart transplant uh, and you were searching for a doctor. I can guarantee that you wouldn't just do a quick search online and get flustered that you couldn't find somebody with the right, you know, pedigree or the right labels or something like that. You're going to call around. You're going to work really hard to find somebody who knows a doctor that can be trusted and you're really going to do your research on that. So I know that it feels like a lot of work in the beginning. Um, but once you find that farmer that you decide you want to support and buy from, um, the work is done and you can just go on supporting that farm. So I really recommend, you know, even like grass fed and grass finished is great advice, uh, and the organic and all that. But the reality is you can put cows in a feedlot and you can feed them grass from a hay, but they're still up to their ankles and their knees and muck and they never get to actually go and get fresh air or anything. Uh, and that could still be grass fed and grass finished. So to me, the, the way around that is always trying to find that farm, even if it's like online now it's 2016, like yeah. go find somebody that's been on the farm tour, at least somebody that's gone out and seen that farm that can vouch for these guys. Uh, and that'll go much farther than trying to rely on labels. And again, once you've found that farm, and you trust them and, and that's who you're going to support and the work is done and you just go on supporting them. So it's, it's really not that bad. And like I said, it's actually fun. You get out there, you get your feet dirty, you get to talk to usually farmers are interesting people that are kind of fun to chat up. So have fun with it. And, yeah. uh, and best of luck for sure. Yeah, I love it. And, you know, everyone's got a story and I, I just love that you guys are so recent in your business. I mean, 2012 was not a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you know, a lot of people have this vision of like seventh generation farmers. Right. and But what's beautiful about our particular generation is we're the generation that's learning about these horrific practices and we're going a number of ways, one of which is into farming ourselves just as you've done. So yep. it's um, you can really meet some fascinating awakening um, stories behind the people um, just as we've learned from you today, Paul. And, uh, and I guess I want to wrap up by saying, well, thank you obviously to everybody for listening, but thank you so much for your time because the more we hear from farmers 
farmers and farmers who stand proud in their transparency like you, the more we're going to start to question and go, yeah, I don't feel particularly comfortable with that. And, uh, yep. and, and that's what we need to do to get this grassroots movement going. So a bit less meat, much better meat from healthy, happy animals um, who had great lives on beautiful farms just like yours and, and will all be making the world a better place. Very nice. I love it. Thanks, Paul. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Low Tox Life podcast. I would love for you to check out the show notes as well, and you can find those at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Now, if there's anything that inspired you from today's episode, I would so love to hear and have you share that maybe online use the lotox life hashtag and i can be found on twitter or instagram at a l e x underscore stuart s-t-u-a-r-t now if you liked what you heard today and you want to join us again next time subscribing is a great way to be notified of a new episode so hit subscribe and i look forward to welcoming you next time bye for now For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.